The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Hi, I'm Jonathan Aberman. Coming up on today's show... And that worries me. Is well-intentioned people. I, you know, thankfully, even now, I don't think there are great threats to the First Amendment as a dictator riding down the center of the street. It's well-meaning people who say, "Well, why don't we just close that down, or why don't we just stop that kind of speech? We'll be better off." That about a third of Americans may actually feel that free speech and the First Amendment is too extreme for their points of view. But people have gotten to a point where, you know, oh, your words are hurting me, therefore you have to be shut down. Um, you know, I'm of two minds on this. I understand that people are offended, but that's not, shouldn't, you know, extinguish the right for someone to express their viewpoint. Welcome to this special edition of What's Working in Washington, where we touch on important topics and spend more time unpacking them. This week's show is no exception to that rule. In fact, it's a very salient one, the First Amendment. People throw it around talk about it in the world, we're going to spend some time with experts unpacking what the First Amendment is and what it means both to policymakers, citizens, and also to businesses. We're joined by Carrie Hatch. She's CEO of MDB Communications, an expert on media and very much at the forefront of how brands and businesses are affected by these trends in First Amendment rights. We're joined by Rob Stoddard. He's a senior vice president for NCTA, the Internet and Television Association, and he's also a member of the board of directors for the National Press Club. Journalism Institute. And Gene Polosinski is Chief Operating Officer of Museum Institute and its First Amendment Center. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Thanks Delighted. for having us. Well, Gene, I'll start with you, and because uh, you draw the, the short straw before we came <laughs> on the air. The First Amendment, a lot of people talk about it, but what is the First Amendment? Well, you know, it's interesting. We After about 25 years of working in that area, uh, two things have really emerged. Uh, first of all, a lot of people don't know that it applies only to the government. It restrains the government from restricting our speech and other rights. Uh, it doesn't restrict private business and private entities, private actors. So your parents, for example, when you're a kid, you don't have a First Amendment claim there uh, if they tell you not to say something or wear something. You're telling uh, me that it, now. Yeah, Where no, were you 25, 80 years ago? It's so ago. regrettable. I hate to go to schools and tell the kids that because they just all sigh. But, it, but the fact of the matter is it's only government that's restrained. And the second thing is we really don't know what's in it. We do a survey every year called State of the First Amendment. And in that survey, never have more than six out of 100 people uh, on average known all five freedoms, which for the record are uh, religion, speech, assembly, petition, and press. But let's drill down for a moment on this issue of public-private. Uh, Rob, I'll turn to you. You're very much involved in the, in the journalism industry, clearly. I hear Americans consistently talk about the First Amendment from the standpoint of this gives me the right to say whatever I want, whenever I want, but that's not true. So how how do how do we find the limitations of that? How do journalists deal with the reality that you know not everybody has the right to say whatever they want? Well, it is very challenging, Jonathan, particularly based on the fact that uh, journalism, to some extent, puts itself in a little bit of a protected class, and I don't say that in a pejorative, but because freedom of the press is mentioned articulately by the First Amendment. Uh, journalists feel as though they have fairly significant, and they do, they have significant and substantial rights uh, to speak freely, to be transparent. I think in part, in answer to your question, 
so much of this depends on, as a society, shared values, right? That is really, what is it that we collectively believe in? Having a First Amendment requires a lot on the part of the citizen. It requires tolerance. It requires humility. It requires the opportunity to collaborate and to converse and to have dialogue. Journalists are really right in the center of that storm, and I think they try to act accordingly and responsibly. Well, it feels that sometimes now that journalists uh, are the canaries in the coal mine, as it were, as these big social trends play out. But speaking, and I want to come back to that and the, and the rule and the role of custom in all this, because I think it's important. But before I go there, uh, Carrie, I want to touch you know your expertise at MDB working with uh, with companies. The First Amendment just it's crashing down hard on on businesses and brands right now. It is. Uh, it is commercialized speech, and it is protected by the Constitution, but it's, it also presents an interesting opportunity for brands that are looking to be relevant and say, I'm with you or I feel your pain kind of thing, and align that brand with what's happening in today's culture, um, communities around not just the world but in our country specifically. And it's an opportunity to catch that wave, um, to reach out to p- potential consumers or existing customers of a brand and um, strengthen that bond, and actually that can deliver to the bottom line. You know, Jonathan, I wanted to add that uh, I, I also have the, the privilege of representing the cable and telecommunications industry. And we, it goes without saying, probably would not exist but for the First Amendment, right? Uh, cable operators like Comcast and Cox and Charter consider themselves to be First Amendment speakers. And then when you look at the content side of the equation, the CNNs, the MSNBCs, all the way through the entertainment side of the spectrum as well, we would not have nearly as robust of an entertainment and information industry here in the U.S. were it not for our First Amendment rights. So effectively, the First Amendment is the protection against the government restricting speech. It is. Yes. And that's really where the government, where, where the First Amendment steps in is, is that we get to have a very robust discussion. You mentioned, Rob, there are only few limitations. You know, there, there's sort of this standard not protected speech, treason. Uh, mm-hmm. You get into uh, a, a defamation. Uh, if it's found to be defamation, is not protected. So, you know, things that you mentioned, custom, we've built that body of law up over 200 years. An interesting thing for me in business is that so much of the First Amendment law was built around the commercial side of the house. The, the, the false advertising or protection for certain kinds of claims and, and, so, and a lot of the litigation went there. But you're finding corporations now often driven by millennial employees, as I understand it, um, who want to stand for something outside of their business. They're going to use the, the power, the reach, the uh, status of their company to say, um, I, I make widgets, but I'm going to speak out for equality in hiring. You know, it's not necessarily that commercial product driven. And that does present business with a whole new area of, of uh, a whole new challenge of speaking with a voice that uh, I guess is actually in some ways more protected than the commercial side, which is always in the, if you rank First Amendment protections, political speech at the top, commercial speech was at the, at the low end. But it, it's interesting when they speak out on matters of social issues, I think they speak as an individual and they're, they gain a ton more protection. Now, whether that's commercially viable, I mean, that's the well, challenge. Well, and it comes with yeah. peril, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's absolutely. the thing, particularly yeah. when you look at uh, some brands that have spokespeople and then there's a rogue tweet by that person. I mean, how closely does a consumer align that person's tweet with the brand that he's yeah. representing? Maybe there's a heavy media buy on and, cable and, networks and, and broadcasts. As we've been talking about this, I've been thinking of the case of the Google engineer, right? Who's right. probably right. the Amen. perfect kind of poster child for this dynamic and this problem in that he believed he was uh, exercising his right yeah. to free speech 
Yet much of what he uh, indicated in his internal memo and even speaking publicly seemed to run counter to what Google believes in as a corporation. And that is really the interesting thing here, just because most people, when they talk about the First Amendment, assume that it it applies within the context of employment. Yes. Or it it, it applies within the context of, of commerce. And you can say whatever you want, subject to certain limitations we'll describe in a moment, like you, know, you mentioned, Gene, like defamation and so right. forth. But I think the Google situation or the events in Charlottesville with the marches, as another example, where people are exercising speech and others are exercised and, and very much upset, isn't there an element here of customary practice working with the First Amendment? I mean, is, is there, in other words, is our, is our problem society right now around the First Amendment or is our problem society around the breaking down of consensus about the exercise of expression? Well, uh, you know, I think that you've always had consequences. I mean, even if your speech was protected, in other words, if I wrote a book that was uh, deeply insulting to a large number of people in the country, the government couldn't close me down. But that didn't mean that readers or people who might uh, want to uh, pick at a bookstore, they I still had that ramification. So uh, you know, in the Google circumstance, I think about it that way, that his employment status was was really outside the realm of First Amendment. Yeah. Uh, what happened was he he spoke. No government agency came in. There was no opportunity for Google to go to the National Board of Fairness or whatever one might call it um, in broadcast, what we used to call the Fairness Doctrine, and insist even that a counter voice be heard. Uh, certainly no me- mechanism for pen- penalizing him. So, you know, I, I think we are presented some ways with voices we wouldn't have heard before as much as new circumstances of speaking. There have always been ramifications to speaking out that were extra legal. Uh, you lost a job, you lost your friends, uh, whatever, you know, or society just totally rejected your ideas. So I do think they're highly intertwined, though. And Gene, I'm flashing to some of the research that your organization has done recently, indicating, and correct me if I'm wrong, that about a third of Americans may actually feel that free speech and the First Amendment is too extreme for their points of view. Right? You know, it's interesting. It's it's driven, and I think people might hear that in the context of political speech today, uh, but it's actually more driven by fear. When we see um, right after, uh, oh, eight months after 9-11, the number of Americans who said we had too much freedom, probably freedom of speech, was uh, gone from the, the teens to 50%. Effectively, it was 49% with margin of error, half mm-hmm. the country. We saw it again within a few months after the Boston Marathon bombing, bang, right up near 50%. Um, so I think people often, I call it taking a shortcut through the First Amendment, they, they're worried about other issues. And you almost get this idea that if, if we just stop people from talking about them, they'll go away. Uh, and it's a very convenient theory. You know, If we just don't hear, if that engineer at Google just hadn't spoken out about that, then we no, there would have been, been sexism in, in, the, in the Valley, in Silicon Valley, whatever he had to say. So uh, it's an interesting thing when, when we see that third or so that are uncomfortable at any given time. You know, I just want to say, but no, you you know, just the opposite. You'll feel better if we talk about it. So have we become a society of orchids where literally <laughs> we, we cannot handle the rough and tumble? Yeah, of, snowflake society. Yeah, yeah. Is that, I mean, yeah, yeah. when you cut through it all, and, and I know there are going to be people listening and say, well, wait a minute, if, if somebody who says dot, 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 this is a threat to society, but... Have we lost our social consensus that we're all in this together and we don't have to agree? Well, and that's that's the issue, right? I mean, it's the idea of sunshine on a topic is usually the best cure. But people have gotten to a point where, you know, oh, your words are hurting me, therefore you have to be shut down. Um, you know, I'm of two minds on this. I understand that people are offended, but that's not, shouldn't, you know, extinguish the right for someone to express their viewpoint. 
And we've just gotten too frail. Well, in, here, in, I think we can reach to, forgive me, back to cable, uh, the cable industry, which produced a great deal more talk. Um, you know, sure. talk radio has always been around. Mm-hmm. In, in mm-hmm. a way. But but right. cable industry certainly produced lots of people talking about issues from various points of view. Uh, and then the web has brought it in your face. It's in your phone. I mean, it's uh, through the magic of radio, I'll hold up my phone um, and you can it's see it. It's a beautiful it. phone, but Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, there is this little device which brings everybody's opinion to me 24-7, if you're like me. Uh, and we it's so much in our face. So part of the, I guess the thing we're working on, getting back to your societal mores and standards and customs, is that we're just not used to that huge tide of information with of ideas that we may not like. And so, you know, sometimes when, you know, it happens that you get caught in a storm, you know, you put up an umbrella, uh, you, you try to shield yourself from these. And that worries me as well-intentioned people. I, you know, thankfully, even now, I don't think there are a great threat to the First Amendment as a dictator riding down the center of the street. It's well-meaning people who say, well, why don't we just close that down? Or why don't we just stop that kind of speech? We'll be better off. And I think part of it is just that it's there. But uh, it's a, so much it's more. a little bit of unintended consequence, yes. isn't it? Really, if you... Uh, even to this day, because the Internet and digital media are still relatively new in the life of the nation, you can still talk to people who were there at the founding, at the beginning, right, back in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And what you find is that, uh, I believe, many of them got into this as idealists, right? New media, particularly social media, digital media, all were going to make the world yeah, a better place. That's right. Because it was all premised on civility, the fact that we could continue to have this discussion in a civil nature, clearly it's gone the other way, and that's what's been so challenging. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is an amazingly interesting conversation. We're, we're lighting it up here. I have to take a little break. We'll be back. But think about this for when we come back. This whole phenomenon of false news, fake news, how does that relate to the First Amendment? We'll talk about that when we come back. A special thanks to our sponsor, Eagle Bank. How do you get to be number one in the D.C. area? Eagle Bank did it by putting relationships first. They're flexible, involved, responsive, strong, and trusted. Eagle Bank's goal is your success. And welcome back to this What's Working in Washington Extra. We're talking today about the First Amendment, what it means to policymakers, but also to government and to policymakers in government. And I'm going to have to do it again. Outtakes, I'm like Jackie Chan. Hey, you know. We're still rolling. I know we are. And welcome back to What's Working in Washington Extra. We're talking today about the First Amendment, what it means to policymakers, but also to business leaders around the region and small business owners as well. Carrie Hatch, a CEO of MDB Communications, she's here in the studio with us, providing us with the perspective of what it means for business people, First Amendment and so forth. Rob Stardard, a senior vice president for NCTA, the Internet and Television Association. And he's also a member of the board of directors of the National Press Club Journalism Institute. And Gene Polisinski is the chief operating officer for the Museum Institute and his First Amendment Center. Ladies and gentlemen, right before the break, I promised our listeners we're going to talk about fake news. But before that, Carrie, I... I understand as part of the first conversation, something else you want to add? This whole topic of the First Amendment is fascinating because when you think about um, competing interests, when you think about strange bedfellows, for instance, the ACLU, as we all know, has recently filed a uh, suit against Metro, our subway system here in the region, who has rejected several ads. So it's from the right, it's from the left, uh, all different interests that are competing, everything from abortion pills to rejecting animal cruelty. Um, They have uh, filed a lawsuit there. When you look at Metro and what they have in terms of their policy, 
They prohibit advertisements that aim to influence public policy or to influence members of the pu public regarding an issue on which there are varying opinions. What advertising of any stature doesn't have an opinion and a point of view? So when you have different perspectives and a lawsuit that comes to bear that's, that where you have the ACLU carrying that banner, it makes a very interesting case study on what is free speech, what is commercially viable, and what should we all be protecting and defending? Absolutely. Carrie, I totally agree with that. And what I, what I find really interesting about that is that that is one case study that we could probably spend a couple of hours talking about, right? That's why my colleagues at the National Press Club at the Journalism Institute this past year created a Press Freedom Fellowship specifically to keep scanning the horizon and the environment for issues around press freedoms here at home and globally as well. So we do that through issuing statements. We have conferences and conversations, and it's really, really important to have kind of a watchdog role in this area to call out these issues as they arise. So, Rob, I, I think you mentioned the, the National Press Club and journalism, which brings me to the topic I wanted you to think about during the break. There's been a lot of discussion about false news. The term is thrown around. There is a general societal consensus that we now have information that is in, in our society that is not at least believed by many to be in factually incorrect. The world of journalism was a world and is a world where people are have accountability, professional accountability for quality of information. Is that what's breaking down right now? What I mean, the First Amendment, you've all told me we have to tolerate free speech, but how do we ensure the quality of information? Gene, it looks like you want to well, you're leaping towards the mic here. I am, and and I because I think we've always had fake news. I'm glad somebody uh, is because yeah, this is a hard. This, this is a, a tough, tough one topic. in many ways, but Sorry, I think guys. we've always had fake news. We've, but we, what happens is as the mediums evolve. Uh, we've we've as a society come to grips with ways of either rating the provider of that medium to know whether it's true or not, or at least there's a presumption of truth or a presumption of falsity, uh, with the exception of a few folks out there who I'm going to offend. Most of us don't accept news about the UFO landing next door and taking somebody off in a tinfoil hat uh, because we say those stories are carried in places where there's a lot of fake news. There's just sensationalized stories that might be fun to read. They're protected in the sense that there's no board of censorship that says, come on, until you prove there's a UFO. But we've, you know, we don't have to be told that these kinds of stories are, are going to be false. Then you get a, a publication maybe that's been around for 120 years that has invested years and years of effort, has an expert who's studied a topic for 50 years, and they write a speculative story um, that might say the government's not telling us everything they know about um, some hidden secret. You know, in a way, you present the same story as the UFO story, but but there's a credibility there attached to the medium and and the deliverer, and they offer sources, they offer research, they offer their reputations up. So we, you know, we we again, the, the internet's been around for a heartbeat in terms of print and even cable and and broadcast television. You know, there was no accident that we had War of the Worlds on radio in 1939. There were a lot of outside circumstances, but it was still a new medium. People had there had come to trust it because they were, wow, I can actually hear a voice. I could hear the president for the first time, probably in a lifetime for almost all Americans. There, there was this aura of trust built up, so somebody snuck in a, a, a trick and people believed it. Um, so we've had to sort this out through mediums all the way through. We're just so new. What's encouraging to me is that we are really beginning to do that. If you remember back at Hurricane Sandy, there were reports that Wall Street uh, literally had flooded and there were, you know, sharks and things swimming through the, the stock exchange. That lived on the web for a couple of days until it was largely debunked. And there are probably people today who still think that they actually the building flooded. Forget the shark part. Didn't flood. 
there was a f- altered photo out of Houston showing a shark swimming along one of these concrete barriers on I-10. It took maybe 30 minutes for people to say, not possible, fake photo, clearly, and they identified where the shark picture had come from. So we're beginning to develop at lightning speed now compared to other mediums that sort of self-correcting skepticism. And I think um, it's because, in part, the medium is so fast that we're, uh, we're that's reacting such an quickly. important point, Gene, absolutely. Jonathan, I was struck by the fact that you used the term a moment or two ago, breaking down. You asked the question, is this breaking down? And perhaps to people of our demographics who came up through traditional media, we might think of it as breaking down. But in fact, it's not. It's a reordering, right? Because these are all products of disruption, essentially. Our traditional approach to media and to information exchange has been utterly disrupted. And we're living in that period of time when we're all trying to come to terms with it. We're all inoculating ourselves. I mean, we're, we're holding yeah. other people accountable and we're growing that muscle in order to filter information uh, in a different way and yeah. to make sure that we've got competent information. Uh, as the advertising representative here, I just find it interesting, though, we, we have an issue when we talk about false advertising, but we're okay with fake news. So there's kind of a double standard there, isn't there, Gene? <laughs> well, you know, fake news now, in, in a way, is very difficult to talk about, as you said, because it's grown to be so much. I think it started out for the first 20 milliseconds um, on the web as news that was just de- really de- deliberately false. Right. Uh, now it's grown to include everything I don't like or I don't agree with. And so it, in some ways, it's hard to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we still have the same antipathy to fake news, deliberate fake news, as we do to deliberately false advertising. The question is, when it becomes uh, this flood of opinion that seems to have fact behind it or doesn't, uh, and we're seeing increasing intolerance for people who shade the truth. My hope is, and maybe I'm in that that group, with it, when the internet started, we'd all be singing Kumbaya by now by holding hands over the net. Uh, that, That's happened. You, 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 you know, I missed it. Another thing I've missed in my life. But uh, that as we move along, we're going to have those same kinds of sort outs and an industry that's grown up, you know, the whole fact-checking industry has grown up now uh, online and around broadcast uh, news outlets and, and around the political side to check. We didn't have that when I was reporting on news. If a politician, frankly, if they said something, you wrote it down and you reported it, and then it was sort of left well, to the but, larger but we, sphere. We but had, instantly now we, we had, knew. and you were, yeah. an editor, Gene, right? We right. had editors that in the traditional sense would yes. create that backstop. And we still have that in journalism today. But what we're so challenged by is that there's no news cycle anymore. It's totally 24 by 7. um, As a final thought on this before I ask you all for your your last individual thoughts, what it sounds to me is the takeaway here is the First Amendment is the backbone of what makes a democracy like ours work. And that it's messy and we're going through a period of time where the signaling mechanisms that were used to define veracity and who to trust are breaking down and changing, but we're working our way. You're very optimistic that five years from now, we're going to have a democracy that's going to be reflective of people's opinions. We're going to figure out how to separate fact from fiction. And the key to that optimism is that government can't get in and and tilt the scale. They cannot get in and stop the conversation. Uh, The founders had that optimism from the start. You know, they were in a very partisan world, um, and they still had an optimism that if we just talked to each other, sometimes yelled at each other, uh, without government controlling that conversation, we would ultimately arrive at the best solution for the largest number of people. That's the foundation of democracy. I totally agree with that. And I've often thought that in a million ways, now more than ever over the past 200 years, we've become more Jeffersonian, right? We've got hundreds of thousands of competing opinions coming at us. At a citizen, it's our resp- as a citizen, it's our responsibility to evaluate those competing messages and to make 
learned decisions based on what we're able to absorb and assimilate. And that's exactly, I think, the point of view of the founders. I love optimism. We need more optimism and reality. Before I let you go, uh, Carrie, I'll start with you. What's your big takeaway for our listeners on this conversation, First Amendment? Um, I think for brands that are looking to distinguish themselves and reach out to their constituents and future consumers, it's an opportunity to be part of a conversation when you carefully align your brand with causes and issues and events that make sense for your brand. But it also comes with some peril. I mean, I think it's a very important. One of the things I think we all have observed with some uh, disdain was the recent uh, Pepsi commercial that came out where you had um, uh, Kendall Jenner who uh, made uh, not the best representation of a situation and not truly representing the interests, I think, of Pepsi. By the way, that was done in-house. That was not done by an advertising agency. You. you need to have third-party objectivity when you look at these opportunities to align your brand. You need to understand what the culture represents um, and really not be tone-deaf to what's happening in the world. So it's an opportunity, but it's also with some peril. Rob, what about you? I've really been inspired just by this conversation, Jonathan, to become myself even more educated about this subject. I so strongly believe in the importance of becoming educated about our First Amendment freedoms and about the Constitution in general. The great news is, living here in Washington, D.C., we are awash in resources in this area. I mentioned the National Press Club, which is keeping a very close eye on this. I also think of our carry our collective friends at the Media Institute, who sponsor a week every fall called Free Speech Week. More information at freespeechweek.org and plenty of resources in order for us to better understand what this means to us as citizens and as business people. Gene, final word? Well, I think understanding what your rights are and, and what the First Amendment means is core. Uh, we likewise have an out education outreach at museum.org. Uh, we reach now just about 8 million students and teachers a year with that um, on a regular basis. We'll participate in Free Speech Week and have some events at the museum. But uh, I think that the founders had a confidence in, in the if we were given the tools of free speech, A, we, we would generally speak having something worth saying. But secondly, the responsibility of those who heard. We don't often talk about the First Amendment and what it means for people who hear free speech, who see a protest, who uh, you know, have to, have to uh, maybe join a petition. There was a, a certain assumption of responsibility that we would join in this national conversation and not just sit on the sidelines. Uh, so I hope that what's going on today, both with the opportunities of the web to give us more ways to do that, but also just with the concepts we're seeing now of what is our nation's direction, that we will join in that conversation. Um, that's what free speech really is for. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to unpack this important issue. And, well, I'm sure we'll keep talking about it together and separately for many years to come. I was Carrie Hatch, CEO of MDB Communications, Rob Stoddard, Senior Vice President for NCTA, Internet and Television Association and Gene Holosinski, Chief Operating Officer of Museum Institute and its First Amendment Center. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a What's Working in Washington Extra. Extras are shows where I and our producer, Tracy Madigan, find a story or an issue that, well, it's something that makes more sense to take the time to really dig into. Because, you know... D.C. is not just about people that are getting things done. D.C. is also about big trends and big changes and opportunities for us to be in the middle of something important and something special. And often we miss that because we're so busy living the day-to-day. So hopefully this What's Working in Washington Extra and others to come will help you get a little more depth into something that's going on around you that demonstrates why D.C. is a great place to be and a great place to have a career. 
I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington. Download this show or any of our weekly programs at federalnewsradio.com. What's Working in Washington, Monday afternoons at 2.30 on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m.